what's really going on in Ontario hospitals right now? Is it as bad as things are being made out to be? Does the current situation in our healthcare system warrant the locking down of a portion of the community? Should we be following vaccine mandates? Do they actually do anything to prevent the spread of COVID, particularly this current variant Omicron? I'm sitting down to talk to my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, who is leading the COVID-19 team in hospital here at one of the major hospitals in London, Ontario. And we cover these sorts of questions as well as many other things relating to the pandemic. So please listen in and thank you as always. Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. Because lived experience. Also, I mean, and I'm assuming we're, our plan was to talk about like protein <laughs> yes. as like the final yeah. So we'll see. We'll okay. see how long this goes. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's going to be at the top of everyone's mind, and you're someone who's in the thick of it. Yeah. So Andrew and I were just talking about uh, his recent hospital experience with uh, the rise of Omicron and everything that's come along with that, and I'm sure most people are paying attention to the case rises, the rises in death, all of those sorts of things. Uh, so. Let's hear some some firsthand accounts of, of how bad is it actually. And while you get started, I'm going to turn my phone off here. Yeah, so just to kind of bring everybody up to speed. So I'm uh, on, on staff at one of the uh, academic centers. And, well, the, the academic center in London, our university hospital campus. And previously we had brought on like a COVID dedicated team and that had since closed down. But then, of course, with Omicron, we had to bring that back uh, so we've got a dedicated medicine team that looks after just covid positive patients and this past week i had the pleasure of uh, being in charge of that team uh, so it was interesting i think um you know it, it it's it's interesting living in sort of the two worlds in the general public and then also seeing firsthand what's happening at the hospital um, and you know, it's it, it inside the hospital. It is actually kind of a disaster. Um, there's way too many patients. There were way too many patients to begin with, but you know, now just with the extra uh, amount of people coming in as a result of COVID, it just kind of puts us over the edge for what we can actually manage, and that's why elective surgeries go away, ambulatory care goes away, and, you know, necessarily so. Plus, you're dealing with, like, unbelievable staff shortages. Like, at no other point in the pandemic have we dealt with this, where, like, tons of, of nurses, our residents, our medical students, like, everybody was either out for being positive or having an exposure at some point and so it's as you can imagine really really challenging to staff enough people to look after patients to do call shifts in the hospital and and so on so yeah it's 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 really challenging <laughs> yeah i don't want to take an immediate yeah. uh political turn here and feel free to to punt, <laughs> punt this question but how do you feel about how do you feel about having to have all of this staff off who are testing positive for Omicron 
while having, I don't know the amount, I'm sure it's not tiny and it's also not massively significant, but the amount of people who are unvaccinated in the world of healthcare who decided that they weren't going to become vaccinated to stay in their jobs, not having those people who might be healthy able to assist right right now. Yeah, I mean, well, as far as LHSC goes, I mean, it it was a very small percentage of our staff that actually chose not to be vaccinated. I think it was like less than 2% of of the entire workforce, and most of those were non-clinical staff. So I honestly don't think it would make a material difference in actually patient care on the front line. Um, but what, what I think is interesting is just the, the actual clinical entity of, of COVID itself and what we're, what we're seeing as like how it relates to vaccination status. Um, so COVID pneumonia, as in the lung disease, like the worst outcome, the stuff that we were seeing really nasty uh, before vaccines existed, um, that we really are only seeing in unvaccinated people. Like it's it's really uncanny that if somebody's presenting with the lung disease, you know, nine times out of ten they're not vaccinated. Is this why there's such a discrepancy in the ICU numbers? Yeah, absolutely, because those are the patients that go to ICU because they're the ones that end up needing mechanical ventilation. So the other patients, and let, let's say that's that was probably about forty percent of the people that we were admitting was for the lung disease. The other sixty percent, and these are rough estimates. Uh, were there because, you know, basically they had our typical acute medical problems that we see on a regular basis. It's just that the COVID status made all those things worse. Uh, So these are people who are older in their 80s and 90s with cognitive impairment who are just getting more confused and unable to be at home anymore. Or they had you know, multiple things going on, like heart failure, COPD, diabetes, etc. And the COVID would just tip them over into all those things being decompensated. And so, you know, for us on our regular medicine, acute care routine, we were seeing all the stuff that we typically would, but they just also happened to have COVID, but we weren't actually treating them for COVID because without the lung disease, without being on oxygen for it, there's actually nothing that we treat those people with when they're hospitalized. We just go about treating their regular conditions and their length of stay is probably about the same as it would be otherwise. It's the people who are unvaccinated with the lung disease that end up staying, you know, two plus weeks. Right. So a few things there. One, uh, I'm asking you to make a completely unfounded assumption, (laughs) but do you think the unvaccinated people who are suffering more and ending up in ICU, is that because they're still being exposed to the Delta variant and they don't have any protection against Delta. So the disease is more severe or is Omicron actually giving people these symptoms? Because I remember when for, when Omicron first started to circulate, they were saying this isn't the respiratory disease that Delta was and it's much more mild and so on and so on. So is that, do you have any idea of why it would be? Is it an issue of variant or is Omicron capable of putting people in that scenario? Yeah, so we, we actually don't get the data on which variant it is. So when somebody tests positive at the door, I, I don't know if it's Delta or if it's Omicron. Omicron's the most prevalent strain right now. So I, I assume that most of those were Omicron. And yeah, it's less likely to cause the severe disease, uh, but it still can. So, and, and you just have also have to keep in mind, I'm seeing a very biased sample of people. Like right. I see the sickest of the sickest people, but that's still a very small fraction of everyone out there who's actually getting COVID at this point. Like it's, it's you know, less than 1%. If you're unvaccinated, it might be a little bit more than that, but still even the vast majority of unvaccinated people would do fine. So when someone comes in and they incidentally test, for COVID, and let's assume they're completely asymptomatic yeah, for COVID nineteen. Yep. How how does that increase the the labor demand on that person? Like, what do you have to do with a patient, even if they're not symptomatic for COVID, but they test positive for COVID? And how much does that process detract from other more potentially important hospital uh, duties? Yeah. So when when somebody has a positive status, it means that they have to go to a COVID dedicated hot zone. So immediately you've 
limited the number of beds that they can move to. So most likely those patients are going to wait in the emergency department for a much longer period of time. Like I had a couple of patients that I rounded on for four days in eMERGE uh, before they got a bed on, on the actual medicine ward. Uh, so that that's really atypical. We don't typically do that. <laughs> you know, people aren't usually there for more than a day or so. Right. Um, so that that's one thing. Um, the, you know, the staffing ratios are, are challenging as well. So a typical uh, nursing day shift would look after four patients on the ward. Sometimes we're stretched to them looking after six patients on a shift um, just because there aren't enough people around to look after them. And then there's all the, all the precautions, the extra PPE and everything that we need to use that goes into it. Um, for the patients who end up on oxygen, high flow, uh, I think we have these special high flow nasal cannulas that chew up a ton of oxygen in the system. They need special monitoring. They Then they have either the ICU team or the res, uh, respiratory therapy team following them closely. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of extra stuff for sure. Is this... Has anything like this been managed this way in the past? And the reason why I ask that is because it's sensible to try and keep even an asymptomatic sick person away from other sick people who are fragile and having just something else to add into their profile of sickness is probably not a good thing. So finding out someone is carrying something that can make another person who's already ill even more ill, it's probably better to keep those people away from each other. Yes. But you would think the same would be true for something like influenza, right? If someone's in the hospital and they're sick, they're in the ICU, it's probably not good if they contract influenza either. Are these sorts of protocols prior to COVID, have things like this been in place for other uh, communicable diseases that can be spread within the ICU or on the hospital floor? Yeah, absolutely. We So using influenza as an example, so we have a protocol called droplet precautions. Uh, so if somebody had swab positive for the flu at some point in the past, then, you know, they would need to be in, uh, in a room by themselves. And then everybody would have to gown and wear a a face shield and, you know, all the other stuff that you see us doing for COVID would have been done for that too. Right. So this isn't new. So you would, so you think that this is what should be happening in these situations. You think. Oh, for sure. To limit the spread. Cause we know like it, it it is, I mean, it's crazy contagious. It's amazing. Seems that way. It's amazing. (laughs) Really. Um, And so if you don't do these things, then you would easily have unmitigated spread. And that's when we end up in the outbreak situations on our, on our wards. And that's really problematic because that again, changes protocols and, and everything else. So we want to avoid, you know, once you come into the hospital, we want to avoid, uh, patient to provider transmission, patient to patient transmission. We want to just, you know, keep you having uh, the disease that you have without spreading it to anybody else while we help you get better. This is a tricky question, but uh, I feel like it needs to be asked. Is it better to have this milder, not always mild, but by and large milder variant of this disease circulating than it would be to have potentially a less transmissible variant that is much more damaging once contracted like delta like if you could pick i'd like to have more delta or i'd like to have more omicron does it make no difference to you or do you see this as uh because some people look at it as well this is potentially a silver lining and a way out because if everyone's going to get this thing and it looked when I've looked at the positivity testing rate, they're between 30 and 40% some days, which yeah. you look at that and you think, there's no way within two weeks, everybody doesn't have yeah. this thing if that's the, te- well, the positivity well, testing let me, rate. Let me just, so do you know people personally who have had Omicron or COVID recently? Uh, no, no, not, not really. Like I know with like close contacts and things like that getting notifications from school there's a child in your child's class who's tested positive yeah. for this but aside from that it's you know if it's if it is indeed a milder disease i know people who are sick every single day and that includes like me and my family since this whole thing started the whole family has been ill on yeah. you know three different occasions not testing positive versus uh with rapid testing uh, the kids not testing positive with PCR testing, but it's hard to really know how reliable that process sure. even really is. Cause I know someone, um, and this of course is very anecdotal, but a close friend of mine who we were supposed to go see 
sent me a picture of her positive rapid test and said, don't come over. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when I was talking to and her. And you went and had a COVID party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was talking to her a few days later, uh, I said, so like how that, like what was the whole process? Did you know that you, like, did you not feel well? And, and she said, no, actually it was five days ago that I didn't feel well. And so I rapid tested, negative. I tested the next day, negative. Tested the next day, negative. And then I felt fine. And then two days later, me and my daughter were doing something that I had to rapid test for. And I just happened to test positive that day when I didn't even have any symptoms and I felt totally fine. So I'm wondering, you know, that's that's one that's that's one event. Yeah. But if this is if the, if that can be extrapolated into more experiences, then testing might not really matter all that much well, right now. Well, I, I don't think testing matters all that much right now, to to be honest. Um, and, and that scenario that you're, you're describing is becoming a lot more common, especially since PCR testing specifically is, is not easily accessible anymore. Um, so, I mean, to, to answer your original question, uh, I would far rather have the scenario that we have now with uh, a less severe, more contagious variant. Um, it, it just kind of depends on if you look at it at the individual level or the societal level. Right. At the level of the individual, I mean, 10 out of 10 times, you're going to choose the less severe thing. So even though you're more likely to run into it, you're less likely to have a bad outcome from it. So that's that's a better scenario personally to be in. And, you know, at this point in the pandemic, the the personal level risk is less than it ever has been. So, I mean, there's honestly very little to be concerned about for your personal welfare uh, if you happen to run into COVID. And you know, I, in my personal life, I know several people now who've had it through their households and you know, it was fine. It was very mild, like no more than, yeah, I was tired for a couple of days. And uh, This is exactly what we want. This, this is our way out of this. Um, from the societal level, though, at, at the system view, it's problematic to have just everyone get exposed to it so fast simply because on an absolute basis you're going to wind up with more people coming to the hospital and yeah that's exactly what we're seeing so like i can i can live in the hospital world and see what's happening there but also believe that yeah this is really hard right now we're going through a big crunch um, but it's starting to level off and i feel like the light is truly at the end of the tunnel and and we're going to come out of this thing okay you know i was very happy, very comfortable to have my kids in school this week. You know, it's, what is it? It's um, January 21st where <laughs> we're recording this. Uh, so the kids have been in school since Monday and I was very happy for them to go back. I am in no way concerned about their safety in the building. Um, they've had their first dose. They're scheduled for their second dose. Eventually we didn't rush to bump up their second dose. I didn't feel that there was really any, any need to do that. When and that, and that does seem to be the theme all over the world, in, including the place where, you know, maybe Omicron didn't originate, but was popularized in South Africa. And when that <laughs> when, yeah. when that big spike happened and then came back down yeah. and the death rates and hospitalization rates were very, very low. And people were saying, this is a good thing. This looks like a very mild variant. Let's hope this is the one that spreads everywhere and yeah. doesn't turn into a more dangerous Actually, variant over time. You know, what, you know what's really interesting? Um, Kingston had some bad Kingston, press. Kingston, Jamaica or Kingston, Ontario? Kingston, Ontario. <laughs> for our international <laughs> listeners. Uh, yeah, Kingston, home of Queen's University. Um, so they had, a, they had a really bad fall and they had a ton of outbreaks. And they, they like kind of tied it back to this like rugby tournament or something went on and then everyone took it back to their home schools. Um, but what's really interesting, and this is before we knew about Omicron. So uh, a lab there went back and looked at some tests that they had banked. And they found that there was actually Omicron circulating in Kingston as early as I think August or September. And so, of course, you know, the whole the travel bans for South Africa in November were like, yeah, I mean, the, we were way, way late on, on this thing. It's just that they were brave enough to detect it and, and actually tell the world about it. And then got punished for it, which <laughs> is probably punished. not great. But, they, but it helps to explain why 
because everybody's like, why is Kingston having such a hard time? Like, it's just everybody in Kingston is getting COVID right now. It doesn't make sense. Like, why is that area? But it's probably because they they happen to have Omicron before anybody else. Yeah. And what I was going to say about South Africa is uh, people who weren't so quick to acknowledge a more minor variant uh, were saying things like, well, it's a younger population in South Africa. They have less (laughs) old people. So, of course, less people are going to be dying, which is a fair point. But then you also, with, with more information and more data coming in worldwide, including now with it being in Ontario for a bit, things seem to be particularly bad in Ontario compared to the rest of the world. And there's fairly savvy uh, da- data analysts who have compared Ontario's ICU admission rate compared to other countries with similar age of contraction, with a similar timeline of contraction, showing that Ontario's ICU rates are off the charts compared to those countries. Do you have any sort of idea why things seem to be so bad here in particular? Is is it the way that we go through the numbers? Is there something about our healthcare system that is problematic? Why does it seem to be so bad even compared to other similar countries with similar age groups? Uh, I mean, whenever you go and you compare one jurisdiction to another, especially when it's a healthcare system in another country, there are so many confounding variables that I I, I never really know how to make sense of that. Like our, our systems are very different. Our resourcing is very different. And yes, you can control for many different demographic factors, age and sex and comorbidities and everything else. But I mean, that that data is always riddled with all sorts of, you know, confounders, which is essentially a term that means that there's there's a variable that's not being measured that's actually causing this effect that we're seeing uh, that we'll never know about. And so we, we can't actually all we can do is make associations. We can't really infer causation. Um, so I, I'm not really sure. And, you know, I, I don't I don't think our, our ICU situation is actually that bad in Ontario. One of the issues, though, and what's going to be really interesting going forward because we've got a provincial election coming up in the spring is what is our future plans for our healthcare system look like for the last 20 years? We've been trying to do more and more with less. The name of the game in healthcare administration has been efficiency, save money, close beds, uh, don't open new long-term care facilities. Like, let's just do everything we can right on the edge of our capacity. And guess what? It turns out that's not a great plan when you have a major crisis. There's no slack in the system. You have no surge capacity, and we are living the consequences of that. So, you know, people in Ontario who might be listening to this, please pay close attention to what political candidates are talking about for healthcare system funding and innovation and changes going down the line, because we need major attention and we need increased resources. We need more long term care. We need more hospital beds. We need to plan for this again so that this decision to lock down yet again is not made because our healthcare system can't handle it. Like that's literally the reason for it, for this happening is because the healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed. Therefore, every single person can't do what they want to be able to do. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to the lockdowns. I, I was actually uh, shared something regarding this the other day because I've been talking for a long time, basically since this started, that the ICU capacity thing is not a new problem in Ontario. No, this is this no. is too, this is going on too. You can look at no. articles from 2006 talking about how capa- hospital capacity is at 80 to 90 percent and on the on the brink of collapsing. Dude, so in medicine at in London, we. Our average capacity is 95 to 110%. How do you have 110% capacity? Well, those patients are ending up in what we call off-service beds. They're taking up beds and surgical wards and other places and therefore disrupting flow. Or they're staying in the emergency department. Uh, Not to mention all the patients that are just waiting in hospital to go somewhere else because we don't have the resources to look after them at home or retirement homes or long-term care. Yeah, I was reading that in a non-COVID year, 
the average hospital capacity is between 80 and 90 percent and major teaching and major city center hospitals spend 60 days a year over 100 percent yeah uh on average which which isn't good <laughs> but all of these politicians are just going to lie and say they know that this is a problem and they're going to try and backtrack but to me this is a big issue with essentially two-party political systems is having these ideologies attached to what it means to be liberal and what it means to be conservative because if you have a conservative government their whole priority is going to be saving money or at least the appearance of saving money by trying to show where they're saving in very specific places like in healthcare because they don't care about the consequence they care about sending the message we're conservative you voted us in look at all the money we're saving here and it doesn't matter the consequence of where it comes from where like when it comes to healthcare maybe that's something that should be a purely liberal consideration and maybe it's not the place to be conservative but i think it's just an easy way to cut to cut funds because most of the time we've got some empty space in there it's inefficient if you want to look at it that way but is the hospital the place to be thinking about efficiency or is the hospital the place to be thinking about the bigger picture of what can happen and under those so like if you think about the money that the conservative government has saved on on skimping on hospital spending and healthcare spending and long-term care spending they've definitely made that up with the economic damage that has been done just from lockdowns and shutdowns alone the four that have happened over the past two years that's billions upon billions upon billions of dollars being spent that otherwise wouldn't have had to have been if these places were just suited for any sort of crisis and this isn't going to be the last one it's definitely not going to be the last one and and you know let's bring this back to cardiometabolic health if you actually put investments into preventive care and things that would help people maintain their health and prevent them from developing chronic diseases, then we wouldn't need all of those acute care resources as much, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if you really heavily invest in this sort of thing now. And everyone knew this. It's been talked about over and over again. But just the way that our healthcare system is set up, it doesn't happen. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really problematic. Do you think there's something that could have been done in the earlier stages that would have bared some fruit at this point? Because there was lots of people, even within the first few months of this whole scenario, saying that we need to think about people's health, people's level of fitness, diet, exercise. And I was even one of the people in the beginning saying none of that matters right now. Like there's a <laughs> disease spreading yeah. that no one really knows that much about. I don't think telling people to hit the gym yeah. is really going to be <laughs> yeah. a good broad strategy. But yeah, the, once it's six months in, a year in, you understand the demographics. Aside from the elderly, you, you know that the metabolic unhealthy are the next at-risk category. Did you get a sense that at some point in there, as things were moving along, baseline health should have been talked about more than it was? Um Probably. I think certainly primary care and ambulatory care should have been talked about more than it was. Uh, because in the initial, like, really strict versions of the lockdowns, people couldn't see their family doctors and they couldn't go to their specialist appointments. And, you know, you're talking to maybe a specialist over the phone. Like, that's just not good enough. It's, it's not reasonable. And so there's a lot of people who are just on the cusp who ended up having decompensated medical issues as a result of the lockdowns directly. And they would have wound up in hospital, not for COVID, but because they couldn't just get the regular routine health care that they needed otherwise. So that sort of thing, I mean, that should have been foreseen right out of the gate. And I think there was there was really unfortunate messaging. And then there was a lag in, you know, primary care opening back up and seeing people in person and all sorts of complicating factors along the way. Um, as for the, you know, more longer term health thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, after the, the initial lockdowns happened, it should have been pretty easy to see that 
people's uh, mental health lagged. Uh, people very quickly develop metabolic issues like with weight gain and uh, and all sorts of other things in a very short period of time, which is yeah. really quite alarming without having access to just you know, not even a fitness facility, but just feeling like it's safe to go outside and feeling like it's it's OK to get together with friends and have a sense of community in like the park and just go for a walk together like Nobody felt that that was safe, or if you were seen doing it, that you were somehow contravening, you know, Big Brother. Those are big problems, and those can have really lasting impacts on on people's health and set you up for, you know, even more problems in a relatively short period of time. What are, what is your general feeling on the lockdowns? Because there's been four now. Um, so your opinion on this may have changed from number one to number four. It looking back as someone who actually has to deal with the effect of a greater spread. Can you think of justifications for doing the lockdowns or do you see any net positive from the lockdowns in in the current version with Omicron and knowing what we know about how it spreads, I honestly don't feel that there is really any positive impact of, of this lockdown in terms of protecting the healthcare system. And because that was the intent of it. Like the fact that we we believe that we could really slow this thing down, just I don't think was ever realistic. And so what we're dealing with now is probably similar to what we would have dealt with had no additional restrictions been put in place. Yeah, that's my own personal feeling about it. Earlier on, yeah, I mean, you're always you're biased by by hindsight, right? Um, I, I've I've never really been a fan of of lockdowns to any degree at all. I mean, there's there's certain simple things like you know massive sporting events like cramming thousands of people into a stadium or an arena for a concert or something like that you know th those are episodic things in people's lives and your well-being doesn't really depend on that and it does set the stage for super spreader type events so I I'm okay with shutting stuff like that down but you know I, I don't think that with proper precautions and just spacing people out in a fitness facility that was ever an issue I don't think that schools really ever were an unsafe place to be and we know that the detrimental effects of kids not being in schools or, or you know or being there and made to feel like they can't do anything they can't say anything they have to have their face covered they can't play sports like those are all much more negative than just having this low risk group of people be allowed to be in the building and, and do what they need to do. And I think most people feel that way, including many people that I know in medicine have never really seen this as a positive thing because the oppressive nature of it is is pretty obvious. Uh, and when yeah. there's something going on that people don't understand and you're taking a precaution because you have no idea what you're dealing with, that's one thing. But once you start to see the trends and understand what's happening... Which we know very well now. Yeah, it's it's hard to justify physical, psychological, emotional, financial ruin of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of your citizens. Why do you think those negative outcomes are not more obvious to the people making the policies that allow these things to happen? Because while people typically in public health, both at the local, provincial, federal level, aren't usually practicing medical professionals who are actually dealing with these things on the front lines, they are people who are somewhat associated with health and healthcare. And it feels like these are considerations that they should understand and they should be making. And they, they have to be things they're considering before making decisions at this level. So why do you think these sorts of secondary negative broad reaching effects we're not enough to tip the scales to keep places open and avoid these sorts of lockdowns. They're making political decisions. So whatever whatever their political calculation is, it, it's led to what what we've seen. You know, I'm I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a policy analyst. Um, but 
any any time you've got people in those positions making those decisions, you better be sure that they're looking down the road at what are my how is this going to be seen? What are the optics of this, and what is that going to do for our chances of being able to maintain government? Um, so you know my 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 personal thought about the school closures that we just had were uh, you know we've got an election coming up. We need to be seen to be doing something to protect kids because the worst possible scenario politically for us would be a dead child. You know, somebody goes to school, COVID's spreading rapidly, uh, a kid gets it, and they die. Well, you know, the opposition is going to have a field day There's with people that. waiting for that to happen. Absolutely. As sad as it is. Yeah, so, and they would just say, you know, because you didn't do anything, this child died. Holy smokes. Like, who wants to be shouldered with that, right? So I have to imagine it's 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 the emotional, it's the political, behavioral psychology that's that's going on. You know, they're trying to read the minds of the voters and how they're going to behave later on. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. The last thing that I want to talk about, which is going to be the most controversial, but something that people are going to want to hear <laughs> I can't wait. a professional okay. opinion on, is the... The ongoing vaccination schedule that, if you look at what's happening around the world, there may not be an end to. Yeah. Did you get your um, fifth dose? <laughs> unless, unless there's an end to the virus. Because yeah. I was reading an article uh, by the European Medical Association, and they're basically saying, like, there's a limit to the positives that you can get from this amount of immunizations in a concentrated period of time. <laughs> and the risk-reward profile is eventually going to shift in the wrong direction. And this might be the point right now. And I'll just give you my personal stance as a citizen on the vaccinations, and you can address any one of them. But I think it's clear that the vaccination is helpful. I think it's also clear that it's mostly safe, but I think it'd be ridiculous to say that it's completely safe. I don't think there's anything that any human being can have put in them widespread and not have some problems with it. And I think it's also clear that at least the effectiveness for protection against infection and spread is waning. And there's also fairly adequate evidence to show that even protection against hospitalization is waning. But then you get into the muddy waters of there's so many incidental tests as well that are coming up in the hospitalization data that who really knows what's what. But clearly vaccination is preventing people from ending up in the ICU. But... At what point does the vaccination roller coaster end? Because with every additional vaccination, however minimal the risk is, that risk is increasing with every single dose. And we know that there are certain demographics, like if you think about as small as it is, young boys in myocarditis having that sort of risk, and also public health not being able to say this is why this demographic of people are at risk having a third dose, fourth dose, fifth dose, you're increasing the risk with every single one of those. And then also the broader issue of you are you are giving a fairly heavy burden to someone's immune system with those immunizations. Is there eventually going to be a tipping point where the cost becomes a problem if someone's on their fifth dose, their sixth <laughs> dose? Like at what point does someone say, okay, this the reward of these vaccinations are starting to are starting to fade and the risks are starting to bubble to the yeah. surface a little more. I'm just gonna set up like a <laughs> like multiple daily injections for myself, like somebody on insulin, right? Yeah. Um yeah, so you know, I, I think we need we you need to definitely be honest about the fact that yeah, there's there's some specific groups that may be at an increased risk for adverse outcomes of vaccination. It's not a secret. It's not controversial. This is just what the data tells us. Um, so the, you know, the males 12 to 30, roughly for the myocarditis risk, specifically with the Pfizer vaccine, you know, that's a real thing. So if that if that group is getting vaccinated, they should not take Pfizer. And that risk seems to increase uh, with the second dose. The third dose is, or if it's a booster, it's uh, it's a half dose. So we, I don't know if the the risk is mitigated at that point. But you know, if you're in that group, don't get Pfizer. There's there are other options. 
uh, the AstraZeneca Johnson and Johnson thing, uh, particularly with uh, females under 50 and the, um, the thrombocytopenia thrombos uh, thrombosis risk. That's a real thing. Uh, but we need we need to take that into consideration and, and be open and honest about it. And we need our officials to be clear about that. Um, that being said, you know, the risk of myocarditis, the risk of thrombosis by having COVID itself, if you're unvaccinated, are higher than the risks of getting it from the vaccination itself. So that also needs to be taken into consideration. Um, <clears throat> but wh where does it end? I mean, I feel like if you've had your, your third booster <laughs> shot, your risk is very, very low unless you're in uh, a really high risk subpopulation. So let me give you an example. Um, typically, we would not be admitting a lot of immunosuppressed transplant patients to the hospital. In the course of just a couple of days, I admitted three kidney transplant patients with COVID. You know, because they're high risk. Their immune system does not respond to vaccination the way that somebody with who's immunocompetent would. So it, for those groups, you have to look at it a bit differently and say, you know, is a fourth dose what's required there? Are extra precautions just on a daily life basis what's required there to protect that vulnerable population? That's important. But for the general public, I don't think there's going to be much of an appetite beyond boosters. If you're eligible for a booster, I think it's, you know, by and large, uh, perfectly safe to get it. You have to make your own decision about it. Um, but after this, you know, I, I would suspect that it will probably be kind of like an annual influenza vaccine type thing so we'll look at what's what's circulating because it's if it's not you know they're not calling it endemic now it's going to be endemic meaning that it's just going to be a seasonal virus that's with us forever and it will go through <clears throat> mutations along the way so if we have good data we're able to come up with an annual shot then i assume it'll probably be something like that and that's probably fine. You're not going to get 80, 90% of the population with that sort of schedule. It probably will be similar to what we see with influenza. And that's likely fine. I think you'll get 80 to 90% if you use the techniques that have been used to <laughs> ramp up the, vaccination. The coercive though, techniques? Thus far. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know when this whole show your QR code thing is going to go away, but hopefully very soon. I mean, if you know that 90% of the population is is you know has had at least two doses and we're well into the booster dose campaign. I mean showing your proof of vaccine is honestly probably not that helpful. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is if you think the mandates are actually I I think the proof is in the pudding. Like the mandates clearly it doesn't matter. didn't do anything. It doesn't matter. You're going like every one of us is going to see this eventually if you haven't already and that's okay. I mean, do do what you can to protect yourself. The vaccines are there. You know, if not, hey, that's that's your choice, and that's cool. And I can tell you, we will treat you uh, with respect and dignity when you show up to the hospital. I will ask you why you didn't get vaccinated, but <laughs> just out of <laughs> your own a, personal curiosity, just exactly. Just just because I'm a curious person, not not for any shaming reasons. But, yeah, I yeah. think there's lots of reasons for a person not to get vaccinated, and that doesn't make any of those reasons logical. It doesn't make them. No. It doesn't make any of those reasons good reasons. But is there a reason that somebody can give that should make you withhold basic rights from them, withhold medical treatment from them, give them medical <laughs> treatment, but make sure that they know? that you have a problem with the fact that you're treating them because i think a lot of people in that population feel as though physicians and healthcare staff by and large see them as the scum of the earth for a personal medical decision that they've made and i think it's very oh, man, unfortunate yeah, we're, we're gonna get into even <laughs> even muddier waters here but like let's just cut it off at, at the pass well okay let me say one thing first <laughs> the the folks who i looked after who were unvaccinated and had you know the worst version of of covid this past week they weren't except for one they were not anti-vaxxers you know for the most part these were elderly people uh who were mostly immigrants to canada living in multi-generational homes who probably you know didn't speak english and probably had a really difficult time navigating the healthcare system uh, with health literacy in general and you know their entire families are probably somewhat disenfranchised and they just 
they haven't gotten vaccinated. And it's, you know, it's not because of some sort of philosophical or principled stance that they're taking. It's literally just they're they're a bit on the fringe and they're on the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, ladder. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, that's that's what's happening. So there still is a vulnerable group out there that we haven't been able to to reach who I think would if, you know, given given the appropriate outreach and advocacy and chance. Do you think that it's a bad approach to take the route of threat and the removal of rights and removing people from common uh, well, common rights in societies well, in order to leverage the vaccination? Yeah. So, so have, having having explained that, you know, clearly my thought is no. We you can't just cast a, a negative light on an entire group of people because even within that group that's unvaccinated sure they share that common thing but it's a very heterogeneous group within that right. and the loud anti-vaxxer people are a very very small fringe group who just seem to be able to leverage social media and all sorts of other things and our mainstream media loves to show us controversial, controversial, shitty things. And, you know, that's what we're stuck with. Um, so proposing taxes on them, you know, saying you can't do certain things. It, it's just if we're a really open and free and democratic society, we shouldn't be treating certain sections of the public that way, uh, because if it's not that, then it's going to be something else. And if you set that precedent, it's okay. Well, if you're a smoker, you know, you're not going to be allowed to do this anymore. Or if your, you know, BMI is above 40, you're not going to be able to do this. And like, where does it end? Where you can't just start making these arbitrary judgments. Yeah. And this is something that I think most people need to spend more time considering is that you might think that enforcing these things is working out for you right now because of the decision that you've made and because of the choices that you've made in life. But once you give that authority to people who have the ability to turn that back on you with the things that you're doing that aren't at the surface right now, exactly. then yeah. how are you going to feel? Yeah. Like you're chip eating, you're non-exercising, you're smoking, you're drinking, you're TV watching. Like these are yeah. all health problems as <laughs> yeah. well, ultimately. Yeah. And how would you... How would you feel? Like, just imagine if we were doing the exact same thing, but for obese people. Obese yeah. people, you're not allowed to go here. When you show up to the hospital, we're not going to treat you because you've made these decisions that you could have made otherwise and you chose not to, and we're going to punish you for it. Like, people would be outraged by that. Absolutely. People who aren't psychopathic. Yeah. But now we look at but it's the this, same argument. We look at this current version, and somehow yeah. this is socially appropriate. It's it's very sad to see. Yeah. And and how much additional risk is that group really presenting to well, to the rest ask. of us? And I I don't like at this point I don't think it's that much. You know, if, if it was thirty or forty percent of society, then yeah, maybe. But I mean, it's it's less than probably five percent. Well, and what is what is the what does that final push accomplish? Like, what is I don't know. What is vaccinating the ninety to one hundred percent going to do that vaccinating the ninety percent didn't? This this is the thing. Like, I just I I feel like we're we're spending way too much time focusing on this really small group that ultimately, you know, even if a few more of them get vaccinated, it's not going to make a, a a bit of difference for for what we're seeing now. We need to be focused on moving forward. How do we open up, get out of this thing, and move on with our lives? So to wrap this thing up, you're given full authority for either, Thank the, you. Pro for either the province, <laughs> now you're the talking country, sense. the entire world, however <laughs> you like it. If you could just put measures in place of how you would deal with this right now at this stage, what would happen? Powers you can give, powers you can revoke, things you can put in motion. <laughs> what do you think is the best way to deal with this at the tail end? Uh, I, I think we need to look at who are really the vulnerable groups among us that we need to put resources in to protect the most. And so that would be people in nursing homes, people with lots of comorbidities, you know, basically anyone over 80, <laughs> because that's the high risk group, um, people who are immunosuppressed, you know, 
we need to look at that and say our, our homeless population as well, especially in shelters, because it's really difficult um, to to stop spread in that environment. So, you know, who are those groups and how do we provide resources to protect them the best that we can? And meanwhile, everyone else go about your life and like, let's get rid of these capacity limitations on restaurants and all sorts of things. I, I think there are certain things coming out of this that that could stay that I, that I like, you know, for example, uh, in, you know, I have young kids, so kids play places, you know, before it would be just like an unmitigated mass of people crawling all over each other. But then because of COVID, it's like, well, you have to purchase a ticket for a time slot. I think that's great, you know, for more reasons than just infection control. It's like actually just a much more Less chaos. enjoyable experience for everyone involved. Right. You know, that in theme parks and that sort of thing, I, I think we could probably keep some of those things just so that everybody actually has an opportunity to really, you know, in, get more joy out of those scenarios. Um, but those are just, you know, small examples. But I really think we, we just need to open up get out there people stop freaking out you know now that people are trying to talk about slapping n95s on kids in schools it's like just just stop like Good just relax <laughs> yeah well i it's, guess i yeah. lied when i said that that was going to be the wrap-up because <laughs> now i want to ask should should that targeted effort not have been what was implemented off from the very start maybe not within the first 30 or 60 days but once we got a sense of what we were dealing with who was most vulnerable who was dying from this thing and getting very sick from it would it not have made more sense from vaccination to where we put money to all of that to just we're going to worry about elderly people and sick people and we are going to tell them what needs to be done to keep them safe and instead of shutting all these things down we're going to take that money and we're going to put it into long-term care facilities retirement homes uh, palliative care all these places where people are already at the tipping point and this is the thing that's going to be the thing if if they can't avoid it should a targeted effort not have been what we did from the very beginning for sure it's just that you know, our, our systems you know wonderful in canada we have these big public systems and a wonderful social safety net but it's like the old you know turning the aircraft carrier scenario it's just we can't pivot on a dime and it takes way too many people way too many layers of administration to make these decisions to give approvals to target interventions where we need to and but, but that's that is the sort of system that that we need to have in order to stop this from happening. Well, hopefully this is the last time we ever have to talk about it. I mean, I'd like no, to say I think I'm we hopeful, just solved it. I think we just solved COVID. Yeah. Send this uh, send this podcast to the uh, to the prime minister. Do you, is there anything you want to say in closing? I don't think so. I I mean apart from just please enjoy your life. Don't be scared. There's brighter future ahead <laughs> you're gonna have to sell that one a little harder yeah. i think <laughs> the content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment advice diagnosis or treatment i mean clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>